Hey everyone, welcome to session 54 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. I am recording this in June of 2018. The board just announced its exam results, so I just want to give a big high five, or at least a virtual high five, to all those uh, listeners who have been uh, studying hard and uh, doing their modules and their flashcards and all that stuff and uh, came out on the successful side of that equation. I also want to say to those of you who uh, may have just narrowly missed uh, to keep trying and uh, and you'll get there. So congratulations to everybody. Uh, it's just an incredible accomplishment and I'm very, very happy for those of you who are now BCBAs. So uh, having said that, there's probably a lot of people who are trying to hire you and I've got a couple of sponsors this uh, in this episode who are in that boat as well. Uh, and I want to just take a minute to reference a new sponsor, Clinical Behavior Analysis out of Kentucky. Uh, I'll be talking more about them later on in the podcast, but I just wanted to mention that they are a new sponsor to the show. Um, in today's episode, I welcome back Megan Miller for an unprecedented fourth appearance uh, on the podcast. Um, I will let her kind of introduce the topic we'll be talking about. Uh, she mentions, as always, numerous references and I will do my best to catalog those in the show notes. So you can go to behavioralobservations.com, look for session 54. And uh, one last thing before we get to the episode, I uh, want to also mention that uh, we do have some merchandise for sale. Yes, uh, we ha if you want a behavioral observations coffee mug or uh, t-shirt or tote bag or uh, we even have onesies. Uh, so if that's something you're interested in, go to behavioralobservations.com, look up at the navigation bar at the top and click on merchandise and uh, you will be good to go. You can see what we have for sale in the store. So uh, that's been something that we've been talking about uh, for a little while and we're finally uh, finally got it going. So uh, again, if you want to check that out, go to behavioralobservations.com forward slash merchandise. So I think that's it for housekeeping. And without any further ado, please enjoy the fourth conversation I've had with Dr. Megan Miller. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now, here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Dr. Megan Miller, welcome back to a, at least at this point in time, record-setting fourth appearance. <laughs> you are now our, our most, uh, most uh, frequently heard guest on the program. Uh, and again, thanks for coming back. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I must just have a lot of free time and I keep bugging you to interview me all the time. Sorry. That, that's apparently <laughs> the case, but uh, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll trudge on. No, just kidding. It's always great to have you on the, on the show. Um, I think you have a, a unique perspective on, on what's going on in the field, particularly from the standpoint of practice related issues. And surprise, surprise, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about research to practice and vice versa. Yes. Uh, from the standpoint of the end user. So um, what I want to do, though, before we get into some of the things we want to talk about is uh, I just want to get some updates because you've been on the show uh, previously, and I think the last time you were on, you were talking about the, the Do Better campaign. Uh, so I would just love to start with an update on how things are going with the, with the Do Better 
campaign and the types of activities you've been up to and so on and so forth? Sure. Thanks for checking in on that. I um, have been making the webinars as that was my main focus for the Do Better movement was really getting my um, goals met relating to getting content out there on the topics for each month. We have over 800 people in the Slack group that we created for the movement and quite a few people each month come in live to watch the webinars that we're filming and then they can also watch the recordings afterwards. So so far, we've talked about uh, thinking better, and we've talked about assessing better. We've talked about doing parent training better, intervening early better, and evidence-based practice. This month, we're focusing on doing better. This is June. We're focusing on doing better with um, environmental uh modifications, but it's really behavioral skills training, demand fading, and functional communication training will be the topics for that one. So everyone is giving really positive feedback. There's a few people in the movement that have a lot of the same ideas and are sharing their experiences. And then there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, this is a unique way to look at things. I've never learned about it this way. I'm really excited to, you know, further my professional development and do better. So it's going really well. And I'm excited to finally be getting content out there that I've been sitting on for years. <laughs> so that's going well. Fantastic. And for those who may not have caught the original episode where you described this, can you give us a little overview of what the Do Better movement is? Sure. So the whole focus for the movement is to look at the practice that we do as behavior analysts and not get stuck in a rut because we're so effective, generally speaking, with what we originally learned to do as behavior analysts that we sometimes we're so bogged down with the work that we're doing. We just continue to do those things um, on the day to day. And that's great. Our clients make progress and people are happy, but we can always do better. New things come out all of the time that are more effective. And the goal for the Do Better movement is to help people stay on top of some of those advances in our field, or maybe just learn about some things that, based on their original training, they haven't, you know, had exposure to yet. Got it. Um, let's see here. All right. Uh, another kind of just follow-up question. I know you have been uh, running around the, the country and, uh, in many cases, running around the world <laughs> doing uh training for peak ABA solutions. Uh, yes. So um, just real quickly, can you talk about uh, what is going on in the world of peak training? Because every time, I just wanted to mention this, not as an infomercial per se, but every time it comes up, it, it's funny because people reach out to me because I've had Mark on the show, yep. uh, Mark Dixon on the show uh, a, a number of times and, and ask me questions about peak or ask me questions about accept, identify, and move, and things like that. It's really yep. funny. It's a, you know, it's like, well, I'm really uh, not a, you know, other than being a fan, I'm not affiliated with them. <laughs> um, but you are, so, um, so I just want to communicate what is uh, the latest as it relates to at least getting the training out there to folks. I know you're doing a lot of workshops all over the place, so talk a little bit yep. about that. Yeah. So the peak ABA trainings have been going really well. It's been a really great experience to connect with people throughout different states and also um, in different countries. And I, when I do the trainings, I get the best of both worlds because I get to teach people about one of my favorite assessments and curriculums, peak. 
And I get to tie in my soapboxes about doing better as a practitioner. So I get to do both and it's awesome. But we have quite a few trainings coming up throughout the rest of 2018. We, we are typically doing two to three trainings in different locations throughout the United States and in different countries every month. Some of the exciting things that we've had that are added and new, we're doing a bit more with online training. So we have our first ever level one online training in August, and it's mostly geared towards people who live in remote locations or for some reason can't fly. So we have some people who um, maybe had, you know, broke their foot or ankle or something and they can't travel right now, or maybe they just had a baby and they can't leave. So, um, so it's kind of for unique situations where it's hard to get to an in-person training that we're focusing on first. And if it go, if everything goes well, we might do more of those, but we're also doing just online trainings in general on different topics relating to acceptance and commitment training and also to relational frame theory. So, um, we have one coming up on Sunday, June 24th, but that's like this, you know, less than a week away. And that one is with Dr. Dixon. And then we have, um, Dr. Reifelt's doing a few on working with adults with disabilities. So that's really exciting. We're just really trying to, you know, meet one of my other goals to help disseminate a lot of this information that people, you know, didn't receive training on in graduate school to help them learn more about some of these advances in our field and accessing, um, some of these effective technologies that they wouldn't otherwise know about. And then the other thing that we have that's on our website, but I haven't done a whole lot of promotion yet. I'll probably be promoting it more in August. The level two um, training requirements are out now. So if people go to the website, peakabasolutions.com, they can read about what the requirements are for level two. And it's all self-paced. So you don't have to attend another training and then the really, really exciting thing that Dr. Dixon and I are trying to coordinate for um, the next year is doing some more advanced training. So trying to do like a two to three day training where the first day would cover mostly um, information about ACT and RFT. And then the second, if we have a third day, would be more hands-on practice. So actually getting in groups and practicing things from Accept, Identify, Move or practicing some of the harder peak programs from the equivalence and transformation modules, because that's a lot of the feedback we're getting is people, those are the newest and most different. <laughs> so people are having a hard time, you know, they read it, but then actually sitting down and doing it with their clients is hard. So we want to do a lot more role playing and practice with those. Great, great. And I would just uh, try to put a plug in for, you know, the more online trainings you guys can do, I think <laughs> the better, because it is just speaking from my own personal perspective it's difficult to uh, take time off from work and time away from your family and and you know travel to a different city and you know the not to mention the cost of you know travel hotels etc uh, so I think the more online offerings um, the better so um, yep. so that's just my two cents so thanks for allowing <laughs> me to, to put that in there Yes. And I'm also glad you have captive audiences when you uh, when you do your peak trainings too, so you can uh, make sure you get your personal messages across. Yeah, and <laughs> it's know, very do. reinforcing. So, um, of course, when you do an online training, though, you don't get some of that back and forth. Um, so that's kind of why we're we're trying to to make sure there's a balance because we do want to still have people have those conversations and have the like hands-on interaction that you get in person. So. 
Got it, yes. Um, all right, so let's get to the uh, task at hand here. Um, so uh, just to, I guess, inform the listeners that you had reached out to me and said, hey, I've got these ideas kind of kicking around, or I've got this, uh, I don't want to say problem, but uh, some uh, c concerns about you know the research to practice pipeline and some of the stuff that we're seeing in our, our journals. Uh, and maybe concerns is too pejorative a word, but... Um, uh, but the idea, I guess, more broadly is, you know, what are, what are the things that we're studying as a field you know, from a, uh, again, from, from an academic research perspective and how does that relate to the needs of the everyday practitioner? Right. And so am, yes. am I kind of characterizing or setting the stage properly here? Yes. Yep. Exactly. All right. So, so um, you, you had a couple of points that you wanted to bring up, and so I think what I'd probably do is, is rather than try to speak for you, is just kind of let you let you kind of go go on here and and and, and at least uh, start with one of the major points that you were talking about in terms of um, you know the participant characteristics and things like that. Okay, sure. So. When I was doing my research at Ohio State for my dissertation, some of these sort of came up, but then I guess I kind of, I don't know, forgot about them, focused on other things. But this past year being at ABAI, a few of the things that we're going to talk about today just sort of slapped me in the face as, man, we really need to be talking about these and, and addressing them. It could be I don't know, my own personal issues. I don't know, but I thought at least <laughs> That's we could a podcast talk about it and then we'll day. see. <laughs> yeah, then we'll see. Maybe people will disagree, but that's fine. So the first one that I wanted to sort of throw around is when people are designing research or interventions, um, are they seeing, you know, are they seeing it too, a too big of a picture and not focused in on the specific individual that they're working with at that time? Um, so kind of looking at like a forest for the trees type situation. So one of the things that um, there's kind of two point two main points relating to this particular idea or, or area to discuss. And one of them is, um, are the individuals that we serve, especially individuals who have disabilities that can't necessarily, you know, their parents can consent to research, but, um, you know, the actual individual isn't necessarily signing a paper to say they, they want the research or even the intervention that we may be creating for them. And there are people a lot now that are doing, um, have in their research protocols or their intervention protocols, they have specifics relating to assent so that, and I don't know why I did quotes, nobody can see me, but, um, <laughs> I do that all the time. Assent, um, where, you know, there's, they have specific, you know, observable criteria where if the individual engages in, you know, certain behaviors, then that means that they're, um, descenting from the study or the intervention and, and this procedure stop. But that's not like a thing that's required or necessary, like not everyone's doing that right now. Um, so that's sort of a whole separate topic, but going down the line of we're working with individuals with disabilities who may not necessarily communicate with us regarding like the negative experiences that would happen in research. And there's obviously a cost benefit analysis that needs to be done. And, and a lot of the really amazing research and uh, progress that we've made in our field has resulted in, you know, observ observations of side effects, you know, maybe relating to punishment or extinction, 
um, where you would have tantrums or regression and, and those types of things happen. But the out, ultimate outcome was such that it was a life-changing experience for the person in the study because a functional behavior plan was created for them based on the function of their behavior and whatever it was that they were initially, you know, part of the research for in the first place, their life was drastically improved because now there's a behavior plan that's going to help teach them replacement behaviors and decrease the problem behavior that they were referred for in the first place. So that is all amazing. No problems with that. But I'm starting to see both in practice and in research some examples where people aren't necessarily using least restrictive procedures because they may have a research idea or an intervention idea where they, they want to see if X, Y, or Z will work, but they're not necessarily looking at, is this actually the least restrictive thing and the most supportive thing I could be doing for this individual right now? So for example, um, and I'm just going to take a random, you know, totally random problem, if you will. It's not... <laughs> Actually, it is, you know, it's, um, it does relate to my life because, um, I, I taught a little girl when I, before I knew anything about behavior analysis, and I think we may have talked about this on a different episode, but I was a lifeguard and a swim instructor. So one the little girl came to me and the parent told me that, um, prior to, uh, swim instruction with me, she was five years old. The person that instructed her previously would just throw in the water or just like dunk her under the water to help her get over her fear of the water. Wow. So let's imagine for a second that you had a client or you were trying to do a research study and you had an individual who was scared of the water. Okay, so let's pretend like that's the problem that we're facing. Um, if for whatever reason, you know, the solution that you came up with was, okay, well, let's just apply escape extinction right? You know, we know that escape extinction is effective. We know that um, there's tons of research to support if you just keep the demand in place and follow through. And you may even have to like physically, you know, assist the person in doing it, then, um, then you can see a gain in skill and a decrease in the challenging behavior. So that is true, um, especially if someone's resisting something, but it in looking at a true, like, I know it's not behavioral necessarily, but if you have a fear response happening, right, where someone is, has a phobia about something, if you look at the research on phobias and fears, escape extinction isn't necessarily what's consistently used. Um, there are other things that are typically tried first, like systematic desensitization. Um, so, if you, but if for whatever reason your line of thought is, well, we're going to do escape extinction and just force this person into the water, like we'll just physically pick them up and put them in the water, right? Mm -hmm. um, or we'll just dunk them under the water and see, you know, what happens. Um, to me, that would be a big problem because while that person may end up learning how to swim eventually, you know, if you do it enough times over and over and over, they may, yeah, habituate and never, you know, resist going in the water again. Be partially, though, because of like some sort of learned helplessness, like, why well, there's no getting out of this. Sure. <laughs> this person's going to keep putting me in the water, so I might as well submit to it. Um, and so that's, you know, it worked. It was effective. If we looked at our graphs and we looked at the data, and if all I saw was an article published in a journal, or if I went to someone's intervention plan and I saw a baseline, 
you know, 100% of the trials, they're engaging in resistant behavior for going in the water. And then at intervention, there's, um, you know, maybe still a little bit happening at the beginning, but it, it goes down to zero where they're now getting in the water without, you know, after, um, you know, 200 sessions or something, they're now getting in the water without resisting. That's cool. Like quantitatively, that would look amazing. But what's the qualitative factor here? Like what did that person experience in those times where you were forcing them to get in the water? How did that, you know, impact their life? And what impact is that going to have down the road? So, so let's say the first 10 sessions, every time you put them in the water, they thrashed and they hit people and they, maybe they cried so hard they threw up. Is it worth it? <laughs> like, is it worth putting a human being through that just to demonstrate that, oh, they're no longer scared of the water anymore? Like after 200 sessions, the data shows <laughs> that, you know, this person now will get in the water. So, and I'm not saying that there won't ever be a situation, especially if there's a life um, threatening thing happening, like say someone's not taking their medicine that like they need in order to live, or they're, you know, engaging in um, such intensive problem behavior, or they're, um, they don't eat anything like those types of things. You may try um, less restrictive procedures and they don't work, or you don't even have an opportunity to try the less restrictive procedures because if this person doesn't take their medicine, they're going to die. So, <laughs> so, so like, obviously that would, you know, uh, be a different situation. But in a, in a case where we're just trying to help this person come over a fear, is it worth putting them through that negative experience? Or should we be just to prove and show your data? Can I, can I just, or, so yes. let, let me, Go ahead. Sorry, Matt. let me just kind of push back here just, just for a second. Um, Let's let's change your example here a little bit, and let's imagine that escape uh, escape extinction was part of the intervention, but only one component of it. Right. So, would you have a similar problem if there was, say, functional communication training with schedule thinning and 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 uh, you know things like that? You know, in other words, if there was an intervention package. Uh, the individual had a uh, that the learner had a um, uh, a functional communication response that perhaps negated the entry into the water, um, <clears throat> and perhaps they used some sort of multiple schedule where you know okay under these conditions the uh, the FCR is going to get reinforced and under these other conditions you know it it, it, it um, we're going to use escape extinction um, you know there is you know some. Uh, it, uh, evidence and again i'm not i can't cite a chapter and verse but when you do things like that as part of an intervention package you you might get less problems that you've described in terms of you know perhaps the the potential traumatization of, of an individual yes and that i would not have a problem with that and that's kind of um the very long way of <laughs> point i was trying to make so um you know making sure if we're doing a research study or an intervention that we don't just focus so hard in on I know about this escape extinction thing. And so that's what we're doing and forget about the bigger picture of what are the things that could be put into place to support this individual, whether it's functional communication training. And if they say, no, you stop or, um, in a case for, you know, the example we're talking about right now with fear, the better research on that is relating to systematic desensitization and using like shaping to help build tolerance. So mm -hmm. unless there was some, like I said, life threatening reason, yes, the shaping 
and building tolerance could potentially take a little bit longer. Like the little, girl, the little girl that I worked with where I did that without knowing that's what I was doing, it took us like two weeks. I shaped, you know, I gave her a Tootsie Roll for every, I looked at, you know, the behaviors involved in going underwater because she would at least get in the water. Um, and so initially we touched to her chin and then we touched to her nose and then we did her forehead and she got a Tootsie Roll for every time she, like the first day, every time she touched her chin to the water, she got a Tootsie Roll. And then the next day, every time she touched her nose to the water, she got a Tootsie Roll. Um, and it wasn't even in the moment. It was at the end when we were going to count. And then at the end, we'll tell your mom how many times you did it. And that's how many Tootsie Rolls you get, right? Um, so looking at those types of more, you know, kind of positive approaches first, and that's not to say it will work for everyone. There could be a situation where you use those positive approaches, you build in the replacement behaviors, um, and then a decision needs to be made by the team. Is this a big enough issue where we do have to like push more and like maybe do some, you know, more intrusive, like physical guidance and things like that. But that would have to be like a team decision that's made. Um, and I don't want this to turn into, you know, the, the other podcast that we've had where I go on my whole like alter <laughs> alternatives to traditional escape extinction, because that's not the point here. The point is more um, looking at, is there a procedure you're wanting to study? That's fine. But what is, what is the negative impact that procedure could have for the individual that you're trying to study it on or like the intervention that you're trying to do? And are you accounting for those things within your research um, before you actually study it? Like, don't get so caught up on the data and like seeing cool graphs where like you had, you know, a great change from baseline to intervention and forget that there's an actual human being where real things were happening with that person, not just your data points. So one of the things I think mo many listeners will be listening to this and, and <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I am going to just get back to the escape extinction, even though you definitely tried <laughs> to steer us away from that, but it's fine. <laughs> um, what? So I, I imagine there's a bunch of listeners who are like, well, of course, Megan, I wouldn't just write a plan with just extinction or just using this sort of thing. But I, I think it's important to point out that these thoughts, I think that, uh, that you're having these observations that you're having or you're describing are, are the result of, and again, we're not going to name names or, or, or cite specific examples here uh, just for the purposes of being, you know, polite, I suppose. But this is the result of actually seeing uh, 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 presentations and posters, et cetera, at ABAI recently where it looked like people were just kind of like trying out procedures, you know. Um, yes. So is that fair yes. to say? It is fair to say, and they weren't, and, be, and when you think about for those listeners who either do research or don't, um, one of the main things when you're, when you're creating a research study, especially is trying to keep it as simplified as possible. So, you know, this is the thing that caused the change in behavior. So while we know as practitioners, if we're developing an intervention, we would have a component package going on where we're making sure that we're addressing and, you know, removal of reinforcement for the problem behavior through extinction, whatever that would look like, having some sort of plan in place to train a replacement behavior, um, and then maybe, you know, whatever other things would be indicated. But in research studies, a lot of times they want to isolate those variables. So they may only do some type of extinction procedure without inc incorporating those other things. And I'm asking at this point, 
especially relating to extinction with the multitude of studies that are out there, is it worth it? <laughs> like, do we really need to keep putting people through those types of uh, experiences when, when there's such a breadth of research to demonstrate that, yes, when you remove <laughs> access to the reinforcer, the behavior does eventually go away if you've properly identified the function. Um, so no, you know, having that amount of research available, is it, you know, should we keep, cause basically the studies that I would see at ABAI, it was trying to apply it to novel situations. So yes, we know escape extinction works, but there's not a study demonstrating it works with swimming lessons, or there's not a study to demonstrate it works with, you know, a fear of heights or whatever. Um, so is it worth it to keep putting people through those experiences um, when other procedures would probably be better, especially for fear. If there's a fear response, rather than, you know, straight up just escape extinction by itself, typically you're going to do some sort of shaping intolerance procedure. Um, so why are we, why would we do research to, to show that, yeah, the behavior might change, <laughs> but is it worth it? Right. So instead of focusing just on studying specific treatment procedures, what what's your what are your thoughts on appropriate alternatives at least from a researcher perspective yeah so for for the topic that we're talking about right now with kind of like more of this like problem behavior negative experience type thing um i think it would be looking at you know the current and, and encouraging students because you know a lot of the time i was a student myself so i know how it goes i had really lofty really big ideas of what I wanted to study. And my advisors helped me kind of pare that down, you know, to be more realistic. And that is, you know, typically what happens for student research, because you have to get done with school and graduate. <laughs> so you're not usually doing really complicated studies. Um, but encouraging our students or ourselves as if you are a researcher, um, and even if you're an interventionist, but this more kind of aligns with research, to when you're looking at how can we expand the, the current research base rather than seeing like, okay, so-and-so published a study on this topic. How can I, you know, apply that in other settings or with other people really carefully looking at the literature and making a decision on, you know, well, there, but there's already 20 studies demonstrating that this thing worked. So how can we make it better? Okay. This is what happened in those studies. And, you know, they briefly usually report on the side effects, like, and, you know, and there was this level of aggression or this thing happened, like, at some point, my um, goal for behavior analysis is that 99% of the work that we're doing, people would be publishing research or have interventions where um, they would be able to show that we got so good at our technology, that the individuals we were working with, there were no negative side effects. Um, to the level of, you know, aggression or other um, really intensive, challenging behaviors being basically provoked with the intervention that was being done. So it's not to say that we shouldn't study these things, but really taking a careful look at the research. And instead of just saying like, well, I'm going to apply it with this new thing. It's like, I'm going to apply it a with this new thing, but how can I do it better and like make it so really limit those negative experiences for the individual I'm working with? Or how can I make it better? And maybe we don't even use that specific procedure, but we advance it 
you know, beyond we, with what we know about, you know, reinforcement and shaping and that kind of thing. And you see this happening with the work that Dr. Hanley is publishing right now. A lot of the stuff that he's doing, practitioners have known for years. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's awesome to finally see research being published on things that were like, yes, demand and tolerance fading, you know, all like the, the work that he's doing with, um, you know, my way and all of that kind of stuff. Like these are things that really good practitioners have been doing for a really long time, but we weren't doing it because there were a ton of research studies on it. We were doing it because we're good behavior analysts and we develop these interventions based on our knowledge of the science. So that kind of thing, like that's, you know, the work that Hanley's lab is doing and looking at, cool, we have this amazing research to show changes in behavior, but how can we change behavior without causing some of these negative experiences? Right. And Greg is the first person to admit that too, which is, you know, again, a, 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 um, I think he mentioned that in one of our earlier episodes. And if, if you know, listeners, if you're not familiar with some of those episodes, uh, there are uh, Greg Hanley has been uh, on the podcast three times. Uh, and uh, those are sessions one, seven and 20. And we go very, very deep into his approach for practical functional assessment uh, intervent, uh, 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 strategies, if you will, and his, uh, I, I was going to say unique approach to functional uh, communication training, but as, as Megan says that, you know, these are things that, that, that people have been doing for a while. Um, Greg has, among others, have, you know, been one of the folks who have um, taken the time to do the, the, the science, if you will, uh, to, to, you know, further validate these procedures. So I just want to uh, uh, mention that in case people wanted some background information. Yes, I love that you have the sessions memorized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not all of them, but the, I, I know. So, so you know, what's funny is Greg's uh, Greg's episodes are insanely popular, so they kind of jump out in that way. Uh, yeah. That... Clinical Behavior Analysis, or CBA for short is Kentucky's expert provider of applied behavior analysis, counseling, and direct support services to individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, acquired brain injury, and autism. And they're about to open the Center for Behavior Analysis, a 13,000-square-foot state-of-the-art facility in Louisville, Kentucky. And they're looking for a clinical director to lead a highly motivated team of BCBAs and technicians. If you're not familiar with Louisville, it's been rated by U.S. News and World Report as one of the nation's best places to live. With a low cost of living, your industry-leading salary and signing bonus will go a lot further. And with an abundance of cultural and recreational activities, you will not lack for fun things to do. So to learn more, go to cbacares.com forward slash careers and set up your confidential interview today. So that's pretty much all I have about the first point with this. Um, The other piece was looking at when we're talking about kind of this bigger picture, smaller picture, how it impacts the individuals that we're working with. Um, Looking at if the procedures that we're using might punish and suppress another behavior. So you kind of brought up earlier um, that combination piece, you know, what if they had, or you were training a functional communication response, like no, or something like that. So looking at, you know, some of the research that I've seen lately or the interventions, 
people write something and they, they write their intervention or they write their research protocol for the thing that they're trying to study without necessarily taking into account the skills the learner may already possess. So if you're putting like, let's say with this swimmer that we put into place that escape extinction procedure and she already had um, the skills to say no. Um, and we're looking at, you know, swimming, it'd be great if she knew how to swim, it could increase her quality of life. Generally speaking, if you don't live in an area with a lot of water, it's not necessarily a life-saving thing. Um, it's just kind of one of those things that like people learn to do. So, um, if I'm physically forcing her and constantly just following that, um, traditional escape extinction route for the sake of my research study, and she's saying, no, 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 but I'm completely ignoring that. And I'm just like, too bad. You're going to do this. Um, as we talked about earlier, that could completely suppress a functional response. And now this little girl that I worked with, I didn't do this with her in case anybody lost that. Um, <laughs> we did not, I did not force her into the water. This is not a thing that actually happened to anyone that I know of. Um, but she was typically developing, but let's say she was someone that was diagnosed with a disability and had very few communication skills or ability, uh, advocacy skills. And like, is it okay for the sake of my research study to show this amazing data that I'm essentially also suppressing her functional communication response of saying, telling someone no when she doesn't like something, right? So I'm teaching her, it doesn't matter if you keep saying no, I'm still making you do this. And then what environments could she go into where somebody maybe is bullying her or somebody is trying to take advantage of her in some way? Um, and in the, because just simply because of the research we did where I did 200 sessions with her of her no, not contacting reinforcement. And, you know, in some of the studies that I've seen when people are really trying to like show that their escape extinction may work or may not, they also might combine like a punishment component with like a response cost. So uh, you know, if she had some sort of like preferred water toy, let's say, so she's walking into the water, she has her favorite water toy and she gets to the, you know, edge of the water and she says, no, if my procedure was to take that water toy and force her into the water anyway, now, not only am I teaching her your no doesn't mean anything, but I'm also punishing it by taking her favorite water toy whenever she says no. And it, you know, when, when I talked about some of these procedures with um, other behavior analysts at the conference, they were like, well, cool, but she learned how to swim, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, okay, but let's look at the bigger picture here. She learned how to swim, but again, at what cost? Like, what else is she learning? It's not a vacuum. There's other things being taught when we put these procedures into place. And it may be from a cost-benefit analysis, you know, again, if there's some sort of life-saving thing happening that we decide, yes, that's, you know, that is being learned, but that's what we got to go with. But in a situation like this, where it's like, okay, she's learning how to swim, or maybe, you know, how to tolerate something else, that's not a life, um, you know, medically, she's not going to die if she doesn't do this thing. Um, life threatening is the word I was looking for. So, you know, what, like, basically, just really big picture looking at, you know, okay, this is the isolated procedure I'm coming up with. But what impacts overall does that have on the person's skill repertoire? Like, is it going to punish um, a response and suppress actual functional 
appropriate behavior across other conditions right yeah in other areas of her life um because if it is then we would probably have to you know well we would have to then do a cost-benefit analysis or make sure that um that there's enough opportunities so maybe it is decided take away the pool example maybe there's something else going on like a light an actual life-threatening thing like let's do the example of a person that needs to learn to take some life-saving medicine um, and they're saying no, and you're like, too bad. We have to <laughs> like, we, and you've tried all the positive things you could and it's not working. So you just have to go in with like traditional escape extinction and like force, force it in there. Um, then that's f- like, okay. In that situation, that might be fine, but how are you going to counter that? How are you going to, um, set up other opportunities to counterbalance the opportunities where she's saying no, and it's getting suppressed? So if I were doing that research, I would want to make sure it might not be part of the research study, but I would want to make sure that we're setting up other opportunities throughout the day for that learner where maybe I'm presenting her with things that I know she doesn't like and she says no. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, you don't have to do that so that she's still contacting reinforcement and her no is meaning something um, just to make sure I'm counterbalancing like, yeah, you're saying no here with this life-saving medicine, but you need to take it or you'll die, (laughs) you know, but it's okay to say no to watching, you know, Paw Patrol. Um, so, but I don't think people are thinking big picture enough about those types of things. Um, and, and I just, I hadn't thought about this, but as I talked about it, explaining it, a lot of the times you'll see where people are putting into place procedures and they just do it, but there's no explanation given to the person it's being done to. Right. So like, Um, if I'm with my toddler, I'm explaining, you know, Hey, we need to take your, um, your medicine because you're coughing and this will help with your cough. You know, if you were trying to teach someone to take like some sort of like epilepsy medicine or whatever, like you need to take this so that, um, you, you, you won't die. (laughs) I don't know if you'd say it that way, but giving a reason, like we're, you're going to take this because this is what it will happen. And a lot of times there's this assumption if someone doesn't have a lot of communication that maybe they won't understand what you're explaining to them and maybe they won't, but what harm would it cause to explain it? Right. So like being just a little bit more, um, like human (laughs) and, and having these interactions with the people that we're working with. Um, so that's kind of a different topic, but, um, but really just looking at the overall impact, whatever procedure you're doing is going to have on the person's life. I see. So having said all that, at least from your perspective, who is doing the research that is um, attends to those concerns that you've just kind of described? Um, or what are some good <laughs> examples of some studies? Yeah. Um, specifically, you know, kind of explaining within the research that they're publishing that they're doing these things. I haven't necessarily encountered that yet. Um, but if you go to presentations and actually talk to the people or you have conversations um, with people that you meet at conferences, there are three people, maybe four right now that I would say, you know, are kind of going more down this line and there could be more. These are just the ones I've encountered. So we've already talked about Dr. Hanley, um, Greg Hanley's research. Um, they're doing a lot with the practitioner issues and this kind of, you know, dignity and respect for the clients and the people that they're working with. Um, and, you know, 
focusing on functional assessment and then automatic reinforced behaviors, um, those types of things. Um, I recently had the pleasure of talking more with Dr. Uh, Jim Moore. He publishes as James Moore. He, he's done a lot of research with functional assessment, but he's in Mississippi and a lot of the work they're doing now is on practitioner issues as well. And same whole kind of, he and I have this whole same philosophy about like, if you're going to do this research, it needs to be, you know, overall beneficial for the person. It's not just about the data. <laughs> um, and then I'm, I haven't had as much of an opportunity to talk to the other two people about their research, but Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, um, he presented, he's presented at some of the ACT stuff recently, and he and I have had the time to talk because he saw me present about the alternatives to traditional escape extinction, about um, ex these alternatives with extinction, and he's kind of focusing a lot. I haven't seen anything published on it yet, but I know he's talking about it in his presentations on what he's calling kind extinction. So, you know, the idea that yes, we still have to not have access to the reinforcer, but there's better ways that we could be doing it, which again, if you're a practitioner, a lot of people are already kind of doing that, but he's hopefully going, hopefully they'll be actually publishing some research on that at some point. Um, and then the last one is Dr. Um, Justin Leaf and his group. Um, they're also out in California, not necessarily as much on um, what I was talking about with kind of like the dignity and respect. I'm sure he does um, require dignity and respect with the work that he does, but the, that flexibility and problem solving piece and really not just like tying yourself to a plan, but looking at in the moment, like what's happening with this learner and what modifications do we need to make? Um, but I don't know how much of that, I know they're publishing research. I just don't know how much of it ties in specifically with what... Um, uh, observations I was discussing just now. Well, and I have to imagine too, space limitations in the, in the publications probably hamper one's efforts to get into the details about a lot of these things and at a conference presentation or just chatting with someone, you know, between sessions at, you know, at an event. Right. You probably get a better chance to, to, uh, you know, get into these things, which is, Probably a good time to mention that, uh, you know, not everyone has a chance to get to conferences, um, but if you have the opportunity to, to go to one, I, I, I strongly recommend doing so. And, and furthermore, uh, and I've made this mistake for, for, for many, many years, is uh, when you go there, don't be shy. Like, go, go talk <laughs> to people after, you know, that you, you see them present and things yep. like that. Um, they're uh, just as excited about this stuff as you are to, to, to present it as you are to hear it. And uh, um, it's, it's not an imposition to, uh, you know, to, to chat someone up after, you know, provided that they're not having, provided they have time to do so. So I just yep. wanted to put that out there real quick. Yeah. Um, and I just, I also uh, saw someone at ABAI, again, it's not the exact same but uh, she's in Chicago area. Uh, I think her name was Diana Wilson. She's a PhD level uh, person, but she was talking about kind of that problem solving flexibility piece as well. And she has a background, I think, more in like social work or something. She had some other background besides behavior analysis. And she was kind of talking about, you know, the marriage of the two. Um, and that is something that I've kind of started to realize in interactions with people at conferences, some of the people that seem to be 
that understand what I'm saying the most and are like, yes, 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 are people with a social work background. And they talk about the things that they learned in social work that they realize behavior analysts aren't learning, especially relating to just people (laughs) and how to interact with people and how to respect people and, you know, looking at the more kind of qualitative side of things. Um, So that's kind of a, a new area for me. I'm not going to go study social work necessarily, but just sort of trying to seek out people that have those backgrounds to just kind of learn more. I can always learn more. I don't know everything. So, sure. you know, what do they know that I don't know that could help me be a better practitioner? You're right. And it's uh, it's Diana Walker from the Illinois Walker. Crisis Prevention Network. Yes. So I knew I sent you the info. I couldn't remember. So Diana Walker. Yeah, she was great. Yes. And, um, and, and for the listeners uh, to know, uh, uh, Megan texted me her business card and said, you must interview her. So uh, <laughs> I never tell Matt what to do. Right, right. Um, <laughs> You'd so. be surprised to know my nickname is Miss Bossy Boots. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, you know, what you said, too, reminds me of one of the things uh, Mark Dixon has said on, a, on some of the previous episodes that, you know, behavior analysis does not, and I'm paraphrasing, but behavior analysis doesn't have a lock on all the smart people. Are you looking for a new job, but you're overwhelmed with all the emails that you're getting from various ABA agencies? What if there was someone who was in your corner and could help you find the perfect job placement? Well, that person exists. Barbara Voss has been working as a recruiter for over 30 years, and her company, HRIC, specializes in placing BCBAs in permanent full-time positions throughout the United States. Barbara has been placing BCBAs since 2011, so she knows our business and she offers personalized service to any BCBA looking for a new position. She also helps companies looking to hire BCBAs too. Here are just some of the things Barbara can help you with. She can provide information about salary ranges in different markets across the country. She can help you write your resume. She can coordinate and prepare you for the interview process and even help negotiate the right salary for you. And best of all, there are no charges to any candidate for all of these services. When you are ready to make a change and want to work with someone who will listen to you and understand what you need in a new position, contact Barbara at HRIC. To schedule a confidential discussion, head over to hricolorado.com. Again, that's hricolorado.com and hit the contact button to connect with Barbara. You won't be disappointed. So I don't know if we have time. There was one more piece with like the research that I wanted to talk about that goes more into skill acquisition. Okay. So the piece that I also kind of, you know, this was really an issue for me when I did my dissertation research, but it jumped out again at me at ABAI is this whole focus in research, but also interventions. I've seen it with some of the clients I take over intervention wise as well. There's a lot of focus on procedures and I don't, I mean, obviously that's what we do, right? We write interventions, we develop procedures um, to change behavior, but, and we've done this, uh, you and I have talked about this before, but just kind of play like you've never heard me say this. All right. So (laughs) when we were talking about challenging behavior, we talked about functional assessment. So when you encounter a challenging behavior, how do you typically develop that intervention? You, you do an assessment, right? You do an assessment to determine the function, the function, right? And then your, your plan is based on 
some sort of uh, reinfor- differential reinforcement or functional communication or antecedent you know, manipulation. Um, and then, well, I mean, I, 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 I practice in a world where the ability for any type of responsive procedure like extinction or whatever is, is pretty, uh, is hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, being in a public school, we can get into that in a little bit. But... <laughs> right. That's his whole, whole other slew of issues. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you do some sort of function-based intervention, uh, both from a prevention and a responsive standpoint, ideally. Right. Right. So your procedures are based on why the challenging behavior is happening. Absolutely. Right. Yep. So when we do skill acquisition, what do we typically do? Uh, you'll do some sort of assessment, whether it's the peak or the, the, uh, VB map or. And those assessments typically focus on, um, the presence or absence of like certain skills, right? Yes. Yeah. And so then after, so we did the assessment and then what do we do? Uh, we start teaching skills based on the outcome of that assessment. Right. So we, we look at, okay, you know, if we were doing the VB map or peak or really any of them, we'd see, oh, well, they don't have matching. They don't have imitation. Um, they don't have, you know, receptive identification. So we'll, we'll teach those, right? So and we so write good. our programs. A lot of the time, typically people already have programs written and they just like change the name of the person on the program. Um, uh, hopefully I, I have never done that. that but... I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, there's even books out there where you can just like um, completely print it out. Um, but that definitely happens. So where in the skill acquisition piece is the why? Because if we're doing intervention with these children or adults, they came to us not having these skills. And there's, um, if they're going to learn the skills in the natural environment with like teaching, whatever teaching procedures, generally speaking, they would have some level of the skill. So there's a reason why they don't have the skill, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it kind and of where, <laughs> where in our assessment process for a lot of people um, is that determination of the why? Yeah, I would probably say the closest thing that's jumping to, the, to my mind is the VBMAP barriers assessment. Yep. You know, that would yeah. probably And not, not everybody does that. And a lot of the people that do it, they do it and they put the numbers in there. And then that kind of, and like, they don't then take those things into account when they write their plan, their programs that they choose and that they put in place with the learner. It's still the same program. So, so I'm, I'm, I don't, I haven't used the VB map uh, in, in a little while, so um, I may be a little rusty on this, but to some extent, however, like, I, and I'm just kind of picturing the items on the barriers assessment, you know, and so if someone has a weak man repertoire or a weak tech repertoire, it's almost like a mirror image of the master scoring sheet in some respects. Right. So, you know, to, you said, okay, well, I have a manning program. I have a tacting, you know, right. uh, you know, some number of manning programs, some number of tacting programs. What's the problem? Right. So that's fine. But then there's also in the barriers assessment, like um, a weak MO reinforcer decreases the effect or uh, demands decrease the effect of the reinforcer, weak scanning uh, or deficient scanning, um, so there's there's different like learner behaviors that are assessed in the barriers. So a lot of people will score that and be like, oh, yeah, my kid, he's not motivated at all. And oh, man, he does not scan. Nope. OK, they get fours on these things. And then and then they just do their programs. 
And then like six months later, they look at the barriers again and they're like, did that change at all? And sometimes it does on its own, but usually it doesn't. So it's still a four, but there's never any like analysis of, okay, these things are fours on the barrier. Um, when it's truly skill related, like manning, tacting, like skill acquisition from a, you know, these are skills that I've been trained that I have to teach my learners. But when it's more of like these learning to learn learner behaviors, it's usually just like a documentation of, you know, yep, that's what's going on for this kid. And that's kind of where it ends, right? Like it's, they don't then take that into account. I know I didn't used to, um, maybe I'm a unique, but, uh, that that's not then taken into account. Oh, this person has a weak scanning. Um, this person has weak MO. We need to work on addressing those things before we even try to teach, you know, skills or if a learner has weak MO, weak scanning, how do I then design my matching program to ensure it will be effective knowing that those barriers exist? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I, what I've seen a lot, both in research and in intervention is people having these procedures in place that, that they've come up with, um, based on their own training or maybe whatever, you know, sometimes there are articles published. So there's, you know, a 10 step procedure for teaching matching. Usually it's not that long, but let's just pretend. And they just, okay, here's the matching procedure, but there's no analysis of this learner doesn't have matching. Why doesn't this learner have matching? Is it because they haven't had enough intensive teaching trials? Is it because they're not motivated? Is it because they're not attending? Um, you know, do they, uh, do they, um, have like some sort of patterned responding that they go into? So, um, they're, or do they actually match? Like they'll do puzzles, they'll do shape sorters. They have a lot of visual perceptual skills, but they just don't match when I put it on index cards. And it's a really like, um, (laughs) non-functional matching activity. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, but they're not like a lot of people don't typically do that analysis. And especially when you look at the research, when people are publishing on whatever procedure they're studying, they're not there. It's usually an afterthought if it's mentioned at all, why was this procedure effective for these people or why wasn't it effective? And the amount of time, I mean, we've all probably heard this issue, like things that don't work, don't get published typically. So, yes, um, the, uh, so the, the, the dreaded time, file drawer effect. Yeah. So we don't, and so we, you know, it could, I definitely know when we did research, um, not my dissertation, but when I did research for my doctorate, there were certain learners that weren't making progress and they just didn't get included in our submission. Some, you know, they just like, we had certain people, um, you know, we had enough to have our multiple baseline design. So those three kids that made the most progress got submitted and the ones who didn't just didn't exist. Right. Well, it's kind of important to know (laughs) that like, yeah, this procedure works for these people with this profile, but it doesn't work for these other people. Um, and so what I see happening is, lines of research that are going down troubleshooting the procedures, but not looking at the learner and the why, right? So like, what if we, when we were doing challenging behavior and we did our behavior intervention plan and I put into place planned ignoring some sort of planned ignoring procedure for a learner and we're like, man, his behavior didn't go down. And we were like, okay, well, how can we adjust the planned ignoring procedure? What, what can we do differently about that? Um, and we just kept trying to tweak that and like publish research on that without ever looking at, wait, was the function actually attention in the first place? You know, I guess one thing I'm, I'm thinking about is, um, let's take, for example, the video, video modeling literature. Yep. You know, there are 
studies that I'm, I can't really cite off the top of my head, but, you know, if you look around the literature, um, especially going back about, you know, five, 10 years ago, when video modeling was being studied, you know, pretty, pretty intensively, the, there would be the, for some, for some learners, there were, you know, the video modeling would be sufficient, right? You'd see, you'd see change and then you'd have, well, they didn't respond to the video modeling. So then they had video modeling plus reinforcement plus, yep. you know, X, Y, and Z and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So um, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question. So is that seems to be okay, at least from my perspective, because, okay, they, they didn't just throw that learner into the file drawer. They continue to iterate. Right. But did know. they look at the learner and why for that learner? Because a lot of the times what happens is, and I know because we just video modeling, video prompting is one of the areas we did research on at OSU. Um, it's There's no analysis of the learner. It's like, okay, well, we know reinforcement works. So let's try adding that. Or we know that, you know, um, making there's there's point of views for video modeling. So maybe if we try a different point of view, that'll work. So it's still looking at the procedures and not assessing and, and analyzing the learner and looking at, okay, you're not responding to this. Why? Why are you, this learner right here in front of me, not responding to this procedure? And there's always a reason. I, and every single client I've worked with, if, if uh, something's not working and I look at that client, oh, you're not attending. Oh, you're not motivated. Oh, you know, whatever. I need to address that thing not just keep slapping different procedures in and hoping that one of those will stick. So it's going back to the challenging behavior, same thing. If I just kept trying to tweak a plan for planned ignoring without ever analyzing, well, why is he engaging in the problem behavior in the first place? Highly unlikely my planned ignoring plan is ever going to work if the functions escape. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Right? I I see your point. Um, I I still like at least the... the, the, for, I don't know if candor is the right word or whatever of, of, of those types of studies where they say, okay, well, you know, yes. this didn't work. So we're going to, we're going to still try to solve this problem, you know, and, 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 and yes, we, we can't say for sure what comp- and element of this, com- you know, uh, this, this uh, package, if you will, is, is causing the, the change in behavior, but we're still showing the individual's data and it's not, right. it's and not I, a perfect, that, it's not right. a perfect, okay, let's apply the independent variable and see the dependent variable change in the way in which we, we, we all hoped it would when we drew this up. Right. Yep. I think, and I think that's great. And that's definitely going down the right line. My um, input to that would be rather than just changing procedures that looking at why it's not working for sure. that learner. Um, and I definitely so it's like see your encouraging point. either researchers or practitioners when you're encountering that for yourself, don't just get so caught up on procedures, but think about the learner and why it's not working for them. One of the things that's really interesting though, with video modeling that you brought up as an example, that's one of the few areas of research where they have started to do that. There are research studies in video modeling where they're looking at learner characteristics and like who will respond to video modeling and who won't, what are the prerequisite skills? And, and they've made, there's a study that came out, I think in 2015 or 2014 that, that where they made those recommendations, they looked at research on video modeling. Um, I think they even did some work themselves and they identified like, if your learner doesn't have these prerequisite skills, don't start video modeling yet. (laughs) They need to have these skills first. 
Um, so that, and I, I'm not really good at memorizing researchers, so I couldn't tell you who the author is, but I'll try to find it and send it to you for the show notes. But so that is like, they're on the right path. And I think that brings up a good question of when there are procedures like this kind of, you know, what should the flow be? Do we study a, like at least show that a procedure is effective for people and then try to troubleshoot and figure out those responder, non-responder characteristics and the prerequisite skills. Um, I think that's a great, that's one way to do it. And, but I don't see that happening a whole lot. Like that, what tends to happen is the same as what's happening with challenging behavior, where it's like, there's the, this line of research that exists and students especially are being encouraged to just like, well, look, try it with a new skill or try it in a different setting as opposed to, um, you know, let's see who this works for and why it's working. Um, and then of course my bigger picture input would be, um, rather than continuing to focus on developing procedures that we do a lot, so, so much more research needs to be done on these learner characteristics and these barriers. Again, a lot of practitioners already look at these things. Steve Ward is one of my favorites. He does, he even has books published on it. But like when I tried to submit a paper once trying to talk about this, it was rejected because there is no research on it. <laughs> so the things that I was referencing, they said my, the, I was referencing like seminal articles um, in behavior analysis, but there was no research. So the practitioner recommendations that I was making, the main um, comments that came back on the paper were, um, yeah, I know we, we can't publish this because you have no research to support anything that you're recommending here. <laughs> and it's, it's really frustrating to know as a practitioner to day in and day out work with the learners that I'm working with and see what I'm doing make so much progress and know there's so many people not doing it. And then to have like the editors say like, yeah, no, but there's no research. And it's like, yeah, I know there's not any. That's why I need to get this out there. I um, so I, I could have resubmitted it to a different journal, but I don't like to publish. So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of the take home with that one. Like, let's start not just studying procedures, but really looking at learner characteristics and why um, those skills aren't developing. Well, it's good for, food for thought because, as you know, we have lots of uh grad students listening to the show and so it's uh, uh not not from the non-publishing standpoint that that notwithstanding <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah fun. definitely publish that's just my own uh, i'm not a good writer i just like to talk a lot um, so <laughs> well that's good because we have a few questions from the listeners right. do you have time to yeah for a couple of these all right cool Let's do it. all right um Haley asks, I'm very interested in Megan's work on alternatives to escape extinction and establishing instructional control. Well, Haley, you're in luck because we did a whole episode on that. Um, I think that was 34. Um, anyway, uh, let's see. My question is, how can these principles be applied in the public school setting for kids in the general ed classroom? Escape, escape maintain behavior is such a major problem in public schools and escape is so easily achieved. How can teachers work to establish instructional control as an alternative to escape extinction in public school settings? <laughs> I feel like that's a, a thing we could write a whole entire uh, or do a whole entire episode on. Sure. Um, so I guess that'll be number five whenever we get to it. All right. Um, <laughs> the, the two main things that I'll say just, you know, as a quick answer is making sure that the teachers, um, whether it's general education or other Classroom environments just have some really solid training on basic classroom management. So um, 
Do they, you know, know how to adequately assess motivation and provide reinforcement contingent on, um, you know, targeted behaviors with enough frequency to actually make a difference um, is key. In the classrooms where I've done training on the seven steps, that's been our biggest barrier. I never even got to finish training a teacher on the seven steps once because I couldn't get her to understand motivation. <laughs> we spent all 40 hours of the time I had just doing training on like, is your learner motivated right now? <laughs> like, let's work on that first. Um, so that's key. I, I usually focus really heavily on just um, explaining the importance of motivation and helping teachers understand like how to be more motivating. Um, because if, if you don't have that, nothing else really matters. If you're not, if they're not motivated to do things with you, um, obviously the escape behavior is going to be higher anyway. Um, so just looking at how to help the teachers become more motivating and reinforcing themselves. And I know, um, there's not necessarily research on it, but there's a lot of really good teacher resources nowadays, like teachers pay teachers, the whole brain teaching videos and all of that, like just have some really good ideas. YouTube, um, there's a few channels, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. But if you look up like classroom management, there's a ton of videos um, on YouTube that have suggestions for teachers on how to be like more fun and motivating nowadays. So that's really good. There's different, you know, activities that they can pull into the classroom pretty easily now with all the supports that are out there on that. So I would definitely focus on that first. And then the other piece is I, um, I have a whole entire training packet that I developed specifically for because of the work I was doing in school settings. Um, and that is in the seven steps book that I um, published with Robert. Um, but I usually just go through that training packet with the teachers to help them like have ownership over how they will implement the seven steps within their classroom. Um, and what's realistic for them. So, you know, really hardcore seven steps is like, you have to have no access to any reinforcement whatsoever. And like everything, it's a completely sanitized environment, but in homes and in schools, that <laughs> is usually not happening. <laughs> so what we tend to do is um, in that packet, I ask about like, uh, identify at least three things that are the most reinforcing and motivating and at least restrict access to those things um, so that you at least have that under your arsenal and can use those and they may, you know, escape to other things in the environment, but if the only way they can contact the most powerful reinforcement is, um, through you and, and through, um, following whatever demands are placed, then that is typically going to be effective. Um, and sorry, there's one more third thing. Um, sometimes recognizing in a classroom setting or in a home setting that some work may need to be done to develop that control. So, and it's hard to convince, especially for really on, I'm so happy that I don't have to be in a classroom, but they're under a lot of demands, the teachers for what they have to get done in a day. Um, but if it's feasible to try to have, even if it's only like 10 minutes a day that they take working on those expectations where the teacher um, can have like 10 minutes with the child, whether it's like at recess or lunch or something to just really build in some like pairing and positive interaction activities and do some like little bit of demand fading where it's like all fun and games the first few times. And then they, you know, slip, start doing some demand fading, like working in some actual instruction. So that's like kind of a more severe situation. But when I train teachers, try to get at the beginning of the school year. There's also videos on YouTube about this as well. The importance of expectations and just training that classroom routine. If they put in the work the first like week of school 
And that might be all they do. Like there's not even actual instruction presented, like reading math science. If you have that flexibility where it's just like practicing the classroom expectations and really heavily reinforcing those, that sets so much of a stage for the rest of the school year that it's like 5,000 times worth it because then they've really mastered that routine and you have that instructional control. So all the work you do going forward, you're going to make so much more progress than if you never take the time to set that stage in the first place. And you're just constantly trying to like, remember class, here's our rules. Right, <laughs> but right. they never so, had any so you spend time saying, okay, guys, we're going to practice lining up. We're going to, yep. we're going to line up to go to recess. Okay. We're going to line up. All right. This is how we're going to do it. And you do some yep. almost BST around that. And, yep. Yeah, and there's totally. videos, like there's tons of YouTube videos now that like demonstrate all of that. Um, so when I do trainings with the schools, I just show the YouTube videos because <laughs> I don't have videos myself. Um, and it really clicks with the teachers too. Um, but we have to be realistic and, and look at the environment that they're in and the best way that we can work within that environment to apply what we know is effective. So I'm, I'm going to add a couple points here. Um, I spend a lot of time in schools and, um, you know, I, I think another thing that's really important is uh, I, I see a lot of mismatch in terms of what we're asking kids to do and what, what their capabilities are, uh, particularly yep. uh, if it's an inclusive model of instruction. Um, I don't always see great um, attention paid to what we're asking a kiddo to do uh, um, who, whose work is somehow modified or accommodated. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes it's just a, a, a numeric modification. Okay, they have to do fewer problems or, yep. you know, the things like that. But that might not be the support that they actually need. Uh, and then work becomes um, uh, super aversive and um, acting out that, 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 you know, gets them out of that environment or setting or what have you is, uh, is, is extremely reinforcing because of that. Yep. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, another thing, and it kind of gets at what you were saying, Megan, is that what I, the language I try to use when I'm working with teachers is basically something along these lines. To the extent possible, yes, we can't do extinction in, in the way in which, you know, might be maximally beneficial. Um, but the extent to which we can make noncompliance boring, right? And that's, yeah. you know, and so I try to use very colloquial terms uh, when I'm working with teachers. It's like, we want this, you know, not, not, not that we want them to, you know, um, not that we want to inadvertently implement some sort of punishment contingency, but we want to the extent to which we can make acting out uh, as boring as possible or the, the outcome from acting out as boring as possible. You know, we can't do hand over hand, with, especially as the kids get bigger and things like that. Uh, and we, so ex problem behaviors that are motivated by escape are, are going to contact some level of escape you know, some level of, yep. of reinforcement. How can we make that outcome as, as, as really boring and unappealing as possible? So they may leave the setting, but where do they go from there? You know, right. um, do they go to the office? Well, going to the office is like Grand Central Station. It's like people watching <laughs> at the airport. It's great fun for many kids. Um, you know, and so maybe there's a different setting that they go to that is that, that provides less ambient levels of, re, you know, kind of unplanned reinforcement. Uh, and I guess one other thing I would mention is I think you're so right about spending individual one-on-one -on -one time with, uh, with kids to, you know, my wife, as you know, is a high school English teacher, not a behavior anal analyst. And, um, and, and she kind of figured this out on her own. She didn't need me to, 
to, to tell her uh, is, is that she um, spends lots of time talking with her kiddos about the events that they're involved in, you know, whether it's sports or other type of extracurricular activities and things like that. And, and, and if you ask her what she's doing, she's like, well, I'm building a relationship, you know. Yep. What we would and say is that, you know, well, okay, you're pairing yourself, you know, you're, yeah. you're you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But that is a big focus of like the seven steps is it's just, you know, a really good, easy way to like help build a relationship. Just follow those steps. Um, All right. So, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, even what you were talking about, like with like making sure that the work is appropriate, like that would fall under um, the step relating to like knowing your priorities. Um, So it all like, I mean, it all really smoothly breaks down the piece that I see a lot of people struggle with is that like, not accessing reinforcement, but like you were saying, yeah, there's going to be some level of escape. (laughs) So make sure it's not reinforcing, (laughs) balance it, make sure that the reinforcement that they contact when they are doing what they're expected to do is so much more valuable and um, more motivating than like whatever they may happen to contact if they like choose not to work. Yep. All right. So Louisa asks, I think we got to a lot of this stuff, um, but uh, chime in if there's, if you have any more thoughts here. Uh, So Louisa says, I would love to ask Megan about translating research to practice. It is a fascinating topic for me, and I would love to find a way to incorporate it during my supervision with new behavior analysts. So one piece, well, there's two things. One that we didn't talk about a whole lot, I don't think, is that like actual translation part. So encouraging, um, you know, obviously contacting the literature and reading the research but not just blindly then applying that <laughs> to your situation. Like, okay, they found, they use these procedures and found these results. Um, what about this study? Can I then apply with what I know about my learner? And, and, you know, um, we don't want it to get so watered down that you completely lose the point of the study in the first place, but sometimes modifications with your learner may be necessary. So for example, if you read a video modeling study and in the video modeling study, they talked about, uh, or maybe they don't talk about it, but you, you can piece it together with just some quick analysis. If you want video modeling to be effective, the person should be attending to a video, <laughs> right? Like think about what are some of the prerequisite skills? Like, yeah, that worked for this person, but what are some of the prerequisite skills that could explain why? Because the research studies right now aren't going to talk about that usually, So doing some analysis and critical thinking, don't just blindly take what you saw, whether it's basic or applied research, don't just take that and then be like, okay, well, let's just exactly do the same thing with my learner. Think about, you know, why did it work for those people and what do I need to do with my learner to be successful with this um, procedure as well? All right. So let's, uh, let's close the show with a, with a, a pretty personal question. Um, (laughs) I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, but Terry writes in, uh, uh, Matt, could you ask Megan how she maintains her sanity and balances her many projects all over the world while being a mom and staying in shape? Do you have clones? Thanks for being a great role model. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Thanks for yeah. uh, writing that in, Terry. And uh, Megan is a great role model. So, uh, And they, they, yeah, thank you for the praise. Um, Oh, I think part of it is I've always just been a person that has to constantly be doing things. So when I was younger, I was in gymnastics and then I was a swimmer and I was basically like go to school all day, go to practice, do your homework, go to bed, repeat. So I've always been someone that just like is constantly on the go. Um, 
I maintain my sanity by having a really good support network. So my husband, um, he, you know, obviously has to do a lot and doesn't like, um, argue with me or fight with me about that. I have my parents live close by so they can help out as well. Um, so that's obviously helpful. I surround myself or try to with people with the similar like mission and values as me. This is something that I more recently learned how to do because I, I am such a, you know, Hey guys, let's all do this great thing. And anybody who was like in my life, I would try to include, um, whether they were showing motivation for it or not, <laughs> which is funny because with my learners, I don't do that. If they're not motivated, I'm like, all right, well, we're not doing that then. Um, so I had to learn how to like, just because I'm friends with somebody doesn't mean I should try to include them in whatever project I'm working on. Cause it could actually waste time and just, um, have people involved in the projects that really are motivated and want to be there because you can't spend your time like chasing people around. If you have like even just one person, but hopefully three or four people who are just as motivated as you are. And you guys are each working on different pieces. You're going to get a lot further and it's a lot easier to maintain your sanity. So, um, and that was actually advice that Ryan O'Donnell gave me is like, he was doing a lot of projects. Um, so if I see someone's not really there, even if they may like verbally say they want to do it, but they're not actually showing any activity towards it, then I just stop including them. And I, I just include the people that, um, are showing the interest and in actually producing work. Um, being a great mom or being a mom, um, hopefully I'm a great mom. Um, it, I just, I have to make time. I'm when I look at, I do a lot of planning. So the, yesterday I was on a flight for two hours and I spent the entire two hours looking at my calendar <laughs> and like planning out, you know, these are the trips I have coming up. What, like, when will I have time with my family? When will I get X, Y, and Z done? So a lot of planning ahead. And I used to, um, when I first started in the field, before I had children, my planner was, I would put the hours. So I would start at 7 a.m. and go all the way until like 11 o'clock at night. And I had like, I bought like an hourly planner where I could like write in every single little thing that I was doing to make sure I had enough time to get the things done. And I would even like when I would meet with my clients, I would, if I had to write a program for them, I had slots in my calendar that I ended up having to make as like programming slots. Because if I didn't do that, I'd schedule sessions during those times. And then I never had time for paperwork. So I started treating paperwork as these are also sessions, right? Like this stuff can't be moved. This is my paperwork time. I know I need at least six hours per week for paperwork. So I would look each week and figure out where those hours were going to be. So lots of like planning and just figuring it out. Um, a lot of it's you learn, you learn what works and you learn what doesn't work and then reflect and make changes for the future. So with the peak trainings, we did a ton of trainings in April. Um, so now I know my limits on that because I started to kind of slide performance wise. And I'm fortunate that the people I work with didn't, um, they didn't like admonish me or anything like that. It was just like me saying, sorry, that was too much. I can't do that again. Um, so knowing going forward in the future, looking at my calendars, like right now we have people asking for trainings in July, but we already have a lot of trainings in July. So I have to tell them, no, you need to pick a different month, right? So being able to like recognize those limitations and advocate for yourself is really important. Staying in shape. Um, I, 
<laughs> keto, just do a low carb, high fat. I used to think people were crazy. Um, but that's the only thing that's worked for me. Cause I don't have time to work out or really like follow a really strict diet. So it wasn't until I started just using that, um, following kind of the a lazy keto diet where I do, um, low carb, high fat, um, that I was able to lose the baby weights. I do run. Um, but even if I, for some reason can't run, um, I still stay in shape relatively well just from the diet. And that's the only diet I've been able to find where that happens. And I know a lot of behavior analysts that do it. So hopefully, um, that's helpful. Running though was not, I didn't like running. I hated it. Um, I got motivated and more into it because it was literally the only exercise I could do anywhere I go. So it, it just kind of became more motivating. And then I paired it with things like running by the water, <laughs> competing with my friends, setting goals, um, signing up for races that were fun with my friends. So if there is like, if you're having a hard time with like a workout routine, like figuring out ways to like make it more fun and motivating, but I was doing workouts like, um, beach body and insanity, like insanity and things like that. Like I was working out twice a day um, last summer before I started the low carb, high fat diet and I wasn't losing any weight. So just make sure to reflect on like if what you're doing isn't working, figure out something that will, <laughs> because that was super frustrating and like really depressing to like be working so hard and not seeing any progress. Yeah. Nick Green so. talked about that when he was on the podcast a few sessions back is I think the, the, the phrase he used is that, uh, you can't outrun a bad diet or something right. along those lines. Yeah, but I was, I had like, my diet was fine. Like I was, um, doing, I mean, I was eating healthy and working out twice a day, but I, I didn't, for whatever reason, it wasn't working for me. Like it, it, there were no changes happening. And I was like berating myself over that, like what's wrong with me. But then I finally just took the plunge and did the low carb, high fat and everything changed from there. And I was already like, calorie counting and working out like the things that you generally see people tell you to do. I wasn't drinking. <laughs> like I was really, you know, being healthy, but it wasn't working. Um, so you could take that and get really negative about it, or you can take a proactive approach and be like, okay, well, even though that's what's recommended, that's not working. So what will work and come up with a new plan? Got it. Well, those are, uh, very, uh, inspirational thoughts to, to leave us with Megan. <laughs> Thanks for coming back for round number four. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast. <laughs>